and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 is where I'd like to uh, direct your attention this morning as we continue moving through this book. I'm going to read Acts 14, verses 1 through 7, uh, and uh, we'll look at this uh, passage of Scripture together. Paul in the city of Iconium. Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 1. You follow along in your copy of the Bible as I read from mine. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. We are moving our way these days slowly through the book of Acts and we're learning about how these earliest followers of Jesus did what Paul had, uh, what Jesus excuse me, had commanded them to do. He had said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, their hometown, uh, and Judea, their home region, and to, the, uh, to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. Uh, from the very beginning, we have learned Christians have been people who have thought about who might be on the next horizon. We're traveling people. We think about those people who are outside of our town, definitely outside of our church, but outside of our neighborhood, outside of our town, outside of our county. We are people who think about those beyond the next horizon. I think if you look at, at church history for very long, you'll discover that when Christians stop thinking about who's over the next horizon, they start thinking about strange things and they become weird. Um, for the last three weeks, um, we've been traveling with Barnabas and Saul. They left Antioch, uh, and their first mission that they've been on, they've gone through some changes already, haven't they? John Mark has left them. Um, Saul has started to become known by his Roman name, Paul, and uh, he also has become the primary spokesman. And as we follow them through this first missionary journey, there have been some issues or an issue that comes up over and over again that I haven't really addressed yet specifically, and it's one I want to talk about uh, today, and the theme is rejection. What does Paul do when he encounters people who reject and despise the message that Paul preaches about Jesus? We see it over and over again in these first few cities, and I want to ask and answer this question today. What does Paul do, and why does Paul do what he does? This theme of rejection, it comes up over and over again, and it really shouldn't surprise us, should it? Um, doesn't it match your own experience? That, that sometimes you try to represent Jesus well uh, at work or in your neighborhood or around the family dinner table, and there's people there who have no interest in what you're saying. In fact, not only do they not have any interest, but they're actually hostile towards it. 
Uh, several weeks ago, I was uh, eating dinner with a friend of mine, and um, he, I was at his wedding. It was in a church, and I think they go to a church, but uh, it's not really a church that preaches the same message that Paul and Peter do in the book of Acts. So uh, I was interested, and my hope was I wanted to represent Christ well in this conversation that we're having. Uh, my friend's uh, church has recently made some significant announcements about uh, uh, their willingness to participate in same-sex marriage, and, and it's legal where he lives. So I asked him about it. <laughs> in retrospect, that was probably not the best way to talk to him about the gospel. But I said to him, I said, uh, so tell me what would happen if one of your ministers refused to participate in a uh, same-sex marriage ceremony. And he was very cold, and he looked at me, and he said, I don't know anyone who would have that opinion, and I don't know anyone who would want to try to have that opinion. That was when I realized the mistake that I had made. <laughs> I'm not sure what I was expecting. I think maybe, I, uh, maybe I, was, I was hoping he would say, that's an interesting question. What does the Bible say about that, and why do you care about what the Bible says? I think that's what I thought I was hoping. Well, um, so I backed off a little bit in that conversation, and I started talking about other things, but I didn't, I didn't make very much progress in my conversation with my friend. What, what do you do, though, if you stare rejection in the face and you can't back off? Um, there's no other ways around. See, faithfulness to Christ demands that you speak, but if you do, you're going to face rejection. What do you do? We could think about this even more broadly, can't we? We can step back and even think about how we interact with other people and how we allow other people to affect what we do and what we say. Uh, in, that term, in that sense, we're, we're broadening the, the, the idea and we're thinking about uh, peer pressure, right? You're only supposed to have peer pressure when you're in 10th grade, right? It doesn't end in 10th grade, does it? Or um, we could use more biblical language, living to please people or living according to the fear of man or um we could use a term that ed welch uses he wrote a book with this title it's it's so good the title is called when people are big and god is small it seemed to happen to you sometimes this is a, a story where the main theme in acts 14 is rejection paul encounters it in every city that he went to if you're someone who's going to represent Christ's world well in the world in which we live and you are controlled by what other people think about you, there is going to be this clash between your desire to please others and your calling to represent Christ. What do you do when those things conflict with one another? This is a temptation that... that uh, this temptation to please other people, you don't have to be a Christian to encounter this temptation. Um, a couple of years ago, the actor Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman, uh, of course, has played Wolverine in uh, the superhero in now seven movies. Uh, he's the biggest, baddest, toughest superhero that's been featured on screen in a while. And uh, he also, he sings, and he's hosted the Oscars. He's got fans all over the place. Hugh Jackman was introduced, interviewed uh, at the Hollywood Reporter magazine, and uh, the interviewer asked him, his name was Josh Galloway, he asked him about his insecurities and fears. Hugh Jackman said, my insecurities, I think, came when I was eight years old and my mother walked out on my brothers and sisters and I and my dad. He said, that from that point on, pleasing my dad and gaining his approval has been almost everything to me. 
Then he said this, I saw a play in Sydney, and in the notes they had this quote from Bono uh, that said, what kind of hole exists in the heart of a person when they need to have 70,000 people scream, I love you, in order to feel fulfilled? But there is a part of me that wants to please, to be all things to all people. I wonder if he realizes he was quoting the Apostle Paul. I'm not concerned today with you and the 70,000. I'm concerned with you about the 70 people at your office or the seven people in your family. If you're going to represent Christ well, you have to be able to deal with the inevitable rejection that will come. Part of it comes, part of dealing with that comes, last week we talked about this, right? Knowing about the magnanimous generosity of God. God is so kind and so generous that he will receive anyone who comes to him even your obnoxious brother-in-law, right? We're just convinced of God's grand generosity. Um, but you also need to know how to deal with this rejection. Paul's in Iconium. Let's remember how Paul gets to Iconium, shall we? Um, and it's time for us once again to get out your maps in your Bible. So keep your finger in the book of Acts and turn me back to the book of maps. Now, when I was talking about this last week, Pastor Scott said, you know you have a huge screen behind you. Why don't you put a map up behind you? Well, I think your Bible should have maps, and you should know how to use your own Bible's maps. But this is called Grace Baptist Church, so I'm going to use the map, all right, behind us. Let's look at this for just a minute here. We have a map of Paul's first missionary journey. Remember, they started in Antioch. Antioch is the sending church. Antioch is a church in Acts 13, prays for, fasts for, sends out Paul and Barnabas uh, Saul and Barnabas and John Mark. They go to Seleucia, the port town. They sail to Salamis, which is, of course, the lunch meat capital of the ancient world. They go over to Paphos, where they minister to Sergius Paulus. From Paphos, they sail to uh, uh, Pamphylia, Perga, in the region of Pamphylia. This is where John leaves. Why does John leave? Barnabas' cousin. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, Lord willing. From Perga, they go up to Antioch, another city named Antioch. It's in the region of Pisidia, so the Bible calls it Pisidian Antioch. Now, um, to distinguish it from Syrian Antioch, so we have Pisidian Antioch. From uh, Pisidian Antioch, Paul's chased out of there, and he goes over to the city of Iconium. Not a difficult journey to trace, but it's always helpful, I think, to look at a map and see what's going on. So we're done with the map, and we're done with the screen for now, and we're going to go into the text. So what I want to do is I want to read through uh, this text. We see here reception of the gospel and rejection. I'm going to walk through the text, read the verses, and see what it has to say. And then I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about this ways in which Paul responds to rejection, how Paul lives with this tendency to people please or fights this, this instinct to people please um, and see if, how we can apply what, what, what the, the Bible says. So let's start here. Reception, verse 1 of chapter 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. It's a wonderful verse. This is the way you want the whole book of Acts to unfold. This is the way you want your life to unfold, right? This is what I wanted to be true of my dinner with my friend. Joel spoke so effectively that a great number of those in the restaurant turned and believed. What I find fascinating about this verse, well, there's a number of things that... 
there's going to be Iconium believers in, in heaven. We're going to meet these men and women someday that, that Paul shared the gospel with, these Jews and Greeks. But I also like Luke's emphasis here. They spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, uh, remember last week we talked about this, how in, in chapter 14, verse 48, it says that all who were appointed for eternal life believed. I love the balance in the book of Acts. Why did these believers in Iconium believe? Did they believe because Paul was, so, was such a great and effective speaker that he worked really hard to present the gospel well? Or did they believe because they were appointed for eternal life by God? And the answer is yes to that question. Election and predestination in Acts 13 does not keep Paul from passionately communicating the gospel in Acts 14. I love the balance in the book of Acts. So there's this reception. It's not too long, though, before rejection happens. Verse 2, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Luke is not shy about saying this. He's going to say this over and over again in the book. The main villains from this point on in the book of Acts are going to be these Jewish leaders, Jewish people in these towns who don't believe Paul's message. And I confess that reading this text and talking about this, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Luke is very plain. They're motivated by jealousy. They're not afraid to be slanderous and underhanded in how they respond to Paul. The reason I think this makes me uncomfortable is because we're in a period of increasing racial tensions in our culture. This seems to have a little bit of echo of anti-Semitism in it. Does, does it feel that way to you? Maybe I'm... It's the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. They're always opposing Paul. Um, there are people who have used this passage and passages like this for to, uh, in church history to defend their anti-Semitism. I think this is a misreading of the text. Luke writes these things to a, be factually accurate, but he also he does not want to incite our anger. He wants to incite our sorrow for them or even our pity. Remember, Paul, what does he do? The first place he goes in every city is to a synagogue, and he preaches about Jesus the Messiah, the promised Messiah for the Jews to the Jews that are in that town. Theirs is the covenant. Theirs is the promises. They have the Old Testament, but they want nothing to do about with Jesus. Uh, in September 2013, there were massive flooding in Colorado. Perhaps you remember some of it. And the Denver Post had a story on September 13th about uh, people who lived high up in the mountains in remote areas. The flooding was so intense that the water uh, washed out a lot of the roads that are necessary to get to these, these uh, homes. Well, uh, Denver and Colorado security uh, is, uh, emergency management responders made it to these people's homes and they invited them, your home, it's impassable, it's impossible to get to your home. We'll take you, though, now here in our vehicles. We made it here, and we'll take you uh, to, to where there is safety. And on one day, 80% of the people that they tried to rescue refused to go. The, the emergency workers said to them, winter is coming, and when the snow falls, there's no way you're getting out of here. No one's getting up here. No one's getting out of here. You could be stranded here for six months. Please come with us now. And the people didn't want to go. Why didn't they want to go? Because they were home. They were in their homes. They were where they felt safe and secure, but they weren't safe and secure. 
Now, do stories like that, should they make you feel angry or should they make you feel pitiful for these people? Maybe it makes you feel a little angry, doesn't it? Stupid. Someone's here to rescue you. You should go with them. Isn't there a part of you that says, what's wrong? Like, don't you, they're telling you the truth. You should respond. You should go. You're going to be stranded here. What, what if, what if, what if you have a heart attack? How's that? And there's no ambulance is going to be able to get here to rescue you. Your, your life is in danger. You need to go. And Paul here, Luke here is writing about people who God has come to bring them great news of God's rescue. But this is the pattern. They want nothing to do with it. And we're going to see that over and over again. And despite that opposition, even in Iconium, verse 3, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Now here, I think, is why they were able to stay there and speak so boldly despite the opposition. Because the Lord confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Now, this is why, again, Paul and Barnabas are able to stay there. Do you remember something similar happened uh, in Jerusalem? The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, did not care for what the, the apostles were preaching about Jesus, but the apostles were performing so many miracles and doing so many amazing things that the crowds in Jerusalem were on their side, and the Sanhedrin couldn't whip up in a mob against the apostles. So the miracles kind of provided a buffer for the apostles so that they could continue to preach the gospel. I think that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 14. The miracles are giving them some sort of cover from the opposition of the Jews and the Gentiles who are opposing them. And we wonder as we read the book of Acts here about the role that these signs and wonders play and what role they might play today. Notice Luke is very specific. The Lord did these miracles. The Lord confirmed his message by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Verses like this are far from justification for announcing that you're going to hold a revival where you're going to do signs and wonders. You don't have power over that. This is the Lord's work, and he enables it to be done. Now, the controversy continues, verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. The gospel is a divisive message. When you start talking to people about Jesus, it's divisive. Um, There are people, I know them, who, who they want to be able to present the gospel of Jesus without offending anyone. They want to do it. They think, they think that if they just come up with the right words and the right phrases, they can say it without anybody taking offense. Now, there are ways to do it that are more offensive than necessary. I'm not, I'm not all in favor of offending as many people as possible. That's not the goal. But you will not be able to deliver this faith message faithfully and do it in such a way that no one rejects it or, or no one is hostile to you uh, in his in a, a little book that he wrote on second corinthians uh, d.a carson says and sometimes there are christians out there who have confused d-day and v-e day i'm going back about 70 years in history right June 6, 1944, under the uh, uh, command of Dwight Eisenhower, the Allies invade Nazi-occupied France. They storm the beaches of Normandy. In one sense, for, for all intents and purposes, that was the beginning of the end for the Nazi regi- regime. 
The United States had woken up. Uh, our, uh, our soldiers were involved. Our sailors were involved. The Marines were involved. Uh, and uh, the, the economy was, was pushing out war material and tanks and, and um, ships. That was, that was D-Day was, in one sense, the beginning of the end. The defeat of the Nazis was inevitable uh, starting on June 6, 1944. But... The conflict continued in Europe for 11 more months until VE Day on May 8, 1945. And for those 11 months between D-Day and VE Day, there were battles and bombings and attacks and casualties. It was the ending part of the conflict, but it's still war. Don't press this analogy too far, but the cross and resurrection is a little bit like D-Day. The inevitability of the defeat of sin and death happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. But we haven't, the conflict has not yet been brought to a close. That's not going to happen until Jesus returns. And until that time we're at war, people will be divided. There's conflict still. Now verses 5 and 6 are about the uh, final days of Paul's initial ministry in Iconium. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders. Uh, these uh, Jews who did not believe had convinced the Gentiles and who were working together with the leaders in Iconium. It was an uh, official, it was unofficial, but the officials knew about it. It was a plot to mistreat them and stone them. There was going to be a mob. But they found out about it and fled to the Iconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Paul here is doing a tactical retreat. He is, uh, he is stepping back for the time being. He leaves, but his, his ministry of preaching the gospel doesn't end, and he's actually going to go back to Iconium, but he continues this, this work. He doesn't quit. And what I want to know is, how does Paul overcome this instinct to keep going, or to stop? How does he overcome this instinct to stop? Why does he keep going and preaching and proclaiming this ministry when it's so unpopular with so many people? How does he not change the message a little bit or alter his techniques so that it doesn't cause him so many problems? Some of you back down because of the simplest things because you want to keep the peace. But what if faithfully representing Christ means you can't keep the peace? I'm going to tell you frankly that the answer to that question, the questions that I have, isn't directly in this passage. Um, This is a story about an apostle who doesn't stop in the midst of rejection. That's the main point. How he does it, though, I think, is the subject of other passages of Scripture. And for the rest of the time that we have together in the Word, what I want to do is I want to give you a couple of principles for... Uh, figuring out that I think were evident in Paul's life for why he didn't back down in the face of rejection or how he overcame this instinct to live by the fear of man. I want to I tell you a story, then I want to give you a couple of principles and show you even then how it arises, how those arise out of the Bible. So here's the story or the scenario. I think I may have told you this before. If I have, uh, I'll blame it on my old age. So sometimes... When we're coming home uh, at our, our family and it's late at night or we've been running errands and it's dark outside, because it's later in the evening, we come home and it's bedtime immediately. And so I say to the children, I say, it's, it's late, we've got to go to bed, I want you to go upstairs right now, put your pajamas on, brush your teeth, get ready for bed. 
And uh, this doesn't happen quite as much as it used to. They're a little bit older now. But for a while, they used to go to the bottom of the stairs and they would turn the light on that is at the top of the stairs and they would look up the stairs. Because the light lit the, the stairwell, but right at the top is where the, the, the hall goes to the left and the right. It branches and you can't see what's up there and the light does not, it's not evident what's there. It's not evident to the eyes, but it is evident to the imagination. And all kinds of things are lurking up there in the hall. You know what this is like, don't you? I, I understand this fear completely. Uh, the room that I grew up in when I uh, was a child, it was uh, basically square, but then in the, the corner there was a little a cutout and there was a desk area there. It was, it was around the corner from the door and, and there was a light switch underneath the desk. And if you wanted to turn on any light in my room, you had to reach around the corner and flip the light on. And it was an old fluorescent light. I remember many, many times standing in the hall and reaching around the corner and click, flipping that light on, and it would, it would flash and come on. That was almost creepier than walking into a dark room, all right, the strobe of that fluorescent. I understand what the impulse to stand at the bottom of the stairs and wonder what's going on up there is like. understand that impulse. And there were two things that I wanted my children to know, things that I think were at work in the mind and heart of Paul, and I want to share them with you. Here they are. Number one, this is what I wanted them to know under those circumstances. You can trust your father. You can trust your father. I would say, I am your father. I have more experience in life than you do. I know about the dark, and I know about our house. I am not going to send you into a dangerous situation, and you need to trust me, and you need to obey me, and go. Now, how does that apply to this mission that Jesus has sent us on? Is God trustworthy? Can you trust him? Well, if we're talking about knowledge of the situation, God is infinitely more knowledgeable than I am, right? When he tells you to go somewhere, he knows. I, don't tell my children this. But there's, there's a slight possibility, isn't there, that there's some unknown danger lurking upstairs. They're never going to go upstairs again, right? There, I, I don't, I'm not omniscient. I don't know everything. There is a slight possibility that there is something, right, up there. Is, is that uncertainty true of God, though? Doesn't he know everything that's going to happen when you obey him into something that is fear-producing in your life? Not only does he know what's going to happen, but he has ordained what is going to happen. Look at Psalm 139.16. I wrote on your note sheet there. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God sends his people to the ends of the earth as messengers about Jesus. That's a very divisive message. One that will many people will reject and some of them will reject violently. But he sends us to do it with full knowledge and control over every situation. In fact, God knows and has planned for every unknown event that Christina McLaughlin is going to face during race week. Every fear, every challenge, every opportunity for failure and success. He knows has, has woven together in his plans for their good every detail of the 10 months that Keith and Vicki Cullen are going to face in Uganda. He knows what time their flight is going to land in the airport. They haven't bought tickets yet. God knows. 
He knows who's going to pick them up at the airport. He knows how many times they're going to uh, eat hamburgers for dinner and how much around Christmas time, how many times the thought of Evan's candy will come to their mind. He knows that, doesn't he? He knows every temptation and every blessing that Robin Talmadge is going to face in Australia. He knows what's going to happen with all the friendships that she's going to form. He, he knows uh, what's going to happen to your relationship with your coworker when you talk to him about the terrible decision he's making to walk away from his family. And God sends you to do it anyway. God's knowledge is far superior to mine. Now, here's where the story of my children at the bottom of the stairs and God's story of sending you out differs. I say to my kids, I will not knowingly send you into a dangerous situation. You can trust me. Does God make that same promise? No, he doesn't. In fact, just the opposite. He tells us very frankly, I am sending you into dangerous situations. I read it uh, from Matthew 10:16. Let me quote it again, didn't I? Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes, as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will be betrayed brother to death. And a father, his child, children rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus is very, very frank with us. You are going into dangerous situations. But Paul wrote about what he discovered in those dangerous situations. He discovered that he came to many ends, but never the end. He found God's sustaining grace every time. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. What's the difference between being hard-pressed and crushed? Well, I don't know. Let's keep going. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life at work in you. So here's what you will encounter, Paul says, guaranteed. You will encounter being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. But you won't experience crushing, despair, abandonment, or destruction. Now, what's the difference between those? There seems to be a lot of overlap there. I think the difference is there is an end. You may experience an end of a friendship or of a ministry, of a job, of a relationship, but not the end. Why? Because we Christians are all about representing one who himself died and rose again. He endured the cross, but he did it so confident of the joy that was ahead of him. He, there was joy to be had on the other side. So he went, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what might happen to you or what could happen to you. Don't be afraid of whether or not you could be bullied or mocked or left out. That's the worst thing for a millennial to experience in their life, being left out or being beat up, or being kidnapped, or beheaded, and videoed, and put on YouTube. 
Don't be afraid of that. God knows about it in advance, and he has certain power to ensure it is not eternally terminal. You can trust your father. What are we going to do? What will we do in our church if sometime in the next five to seven years we send somebody to Afghanistan? We won't be able to talk about it by that name. We'll say our friend who's in Asia or, or something like that. What do we do if we send somebody to represent Jesus to Afghanistan and they end up on YouTube getting their head chopped off? What do we do? We say, oh, we gather together and we cry and we say, How long, O oh Lord? And then, with tears in our eyes, we say, oh, this is glory. Glory, clothed in white, they are before Jesus' throne, rejoicing as one of the martyrs of his church. That's what we do. You can trust your Father. Now, here's the second thing that I want my children to know at the bottom of the stairs when they're there thinking about going upstairs. This is the second thing I want them to know. You should fear your father. You should fear your father. I want them to know that when they are there, they should have a higher regard for the fact that I have told them to go upstairs than they have the regard for whatever their imagination has told them might be up there. I want them to be more afraid of disobeying me than they are afraid of what they're thinking might be upstairs. Uh, Jesus taught us to think this way. Look at Luke 12. I read the Matthew 10 section, a paraphrase of this, uh, a few minutes ago. But look at Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Don't be afraid of being beaten up or mocked or, or beheaded or left out. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The secret to overcoming the fear of man is not to gin up some sort of courage and think, oh, I'm so courageous I can go. That's not, the, that's not if there's a secret. That's not it. If there is a secret, it's that you must fear God more. I am more afraid of, of dishonoring him than I am of whatever the people in my life can do to me. I have a higher regard for his good opinion than I have for the, the good opinion of those around me. Now, just in case that, that concerns you, you know, what did Jesus say right after that? Fearing him who can throw your body into hell. Luke 12, 6 and 7, look what it says. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Oh, we read this, didn't we? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. <laughs> My case, it's a decreasing number. 967, 966, 965. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. So there's this love, but don't move too, past, uh, too fast past this fear. This fear of God, this reverence for him. Every good action, mo every good, uh, action movie has a chase scene. I've seen dozens of chase scenes. I like chase scenes that happen on roofs. You, you, I don't know why. How would you end up on the roof? I'm not sure. But in this city, right, you climb out the window and there you are on the roof. And you get to the top of the roof and it's a long way down. And you think, ay. But you turn around behind you and, and there's a bad guy coming. 
And which are you more afraid of at that moment, falling or whatever he has planned for you? There is a bigger fear that takes over, and these action heroes, intrepid as they are, run across the roofs because, that, because there's something more dangerous coming. Your high, you should have a higher regard for God in his power and his authority than you do for whatever anybody else you think might be able to do for you, against you. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's, he's pressing us, or uh, Luke in this work, he's pressing us about a certain type of idolatry. We're going to talk about idolatry, Lord willing, more next week in Acts uh, 14. But idolatry happens when you replace God with someone in your life. Something else in your life has dominance in your life. Um, in one of his books, Tim Keller writes about how other people can be idolatrous or how they can be idols in our lives. Listen to some of the things he says. He says, if you say to yourself, life only has meaning for me if I am loved and respected by, and you can fill in the blank, that is approval idolatry. You've replaced the approval of someone else higher than the approval of God. Uh, if you say, life only has meaning if people are dependent on me and need me, that's a form of idolatry he called helping idolatry. If you say, life only has meaning if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe, that's dependence idolatry. If you say, life, only has, life has meaning only if my children or parents are happy and happy with me, that is family idolatry. Do you see how people-pleasing replaces God? How it minimizes God and makes people very big? You, you cannot live that way and represent Christ well, how, how do you get to a place of mind and heart where you're fearless like that? I confess Paul had an advantage. Didn't Paul have a certain advantage? I think if you're riding down the road and you see Jesus in blinding glory, uh, that you have reason there to be fearless in the face of opposition, right? I mean, Paul had... He had a certain advantage. To whom much is given, much is required. <laughs> Paul, he had a certain advantage. I haven't had that experience, but, but Paul seemed to think that the message of the gospel is sufficient to change me like it changed him. He seemed to believe that. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Death, uh, Christ's death, stops you from living for yourself, living to please others, living to fear others, and for him. Why? The message of the death and resurrection of Christ tells you about God's fierce wrath and why he should be feared. See, Jesus died bearing the punishment for sin we deserved. We sang it last week. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Oh, how bad is sin, it's so bad, that only, uh, and how, how fierce is God's wrath, it's so fierce against it, that only the sacrifice of his perfect sin, son, could provide sufficient payment. You almost would think reading the Bible 
that God loves us more than he loves his son. Look at how fierce his wrath is. The cross tells us about the fullness of of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to be our sin bearer, our substitute. The cross tells us that you are more guilty than you believe and more loved than you ever dared dream. Why do you need 70,000 screaming fans to say I love you when God loves you so? The cross and resurrection speak about God's wrath, his love, his faithfulness, his power, his longing to be reconciled to all who come to him by faith. And if you really get what the cross says, you will be free. It will free you. It will free you to speak and represent Christ even when you don't know what might happen. Even when your imagination can conjure up all sorts of risks and dangers. Even when you don't know what it will cost you and what dangers you will face, all those unknown things at the top of the stairs that keep you from moving, it won't be as bad as you think when you get up there. If it's worse, though, there's resurrection. That's why our goal is in every circumstance we face, every circumstance we face, we want this to be true about ourselves. Verse 7, they continue to preach the gospel. Those people. Regardless of what happened to them, they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, when we think about what Paul endured, how much suffering and loss and pain in his body he had, uh, it is astounding to us. And Lord, we would be faithful representatives of yours. I ask that you, according to your kindness, would keep our church looking over the next horizon. Oh, maybe sometimes it's just looking over the next fence, but looking over the next horizon and thinking about the people there. Keep us from the strangeness that happens to Christians when they stop thinking about those people. And I do ask that you would make it true of us what was true of the Apostle Paul, that we continue to preach the gospel. Help us in the three months that are ahead of us to send Christina and Robin and Vicki and Keith, help us to send them with joy and courage that comes from our high regard for your supremacy, your supreme knowledge, your supreme power, your supreme promises. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.